we did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network, Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network, Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. Do you know this story? It's 1977. Terry Jens and her friend decide to bicycle across America. On June 22nd, 1977, these two Yale students stop at Klein Falls State Park in Oregon to camp. That evening, they're brutally attacked by a man who runs over their tent where they are sleeping and assaults them with an axe. Despite their injuries, both survive. The friend suffers partial blindness and memory loss. Jens's body is permanently scarred. Fifteen years later, Jens decides to investigate the crime, even though the statute of limitations on attempted murder has expired and she would never be able to see her attacker prosecuted. Her investigation leads to a man whom Oregon locals have always suspected was the perpetrator. She learns that he too obsesses about the incident, frequently talking about the crime, and she even observes his polygraph session in which he is asked about the attack on the two women. She attends his trial, which results in his conviction and sentencing for charges related to a different crime. However, she never speaks directly with the man. Although never fully resolved, Jens states the value of her investigation has been to break out of the, quote, claustrophobic confines of her memories. She's for she comes out in the springtime bringing in uh, 2006, Jens wrote a memoir of her experience, Strange Piece of Paradise, A Return to the American West to Investigate My Attempted Murder and Solve the Mystery of Myself.
This is Who Killed Teresa, and I'm your host, John Allure. I want to spend the next three episodes um, talking about this notion of traveling and uh, wanderlust, um, particularly in the, the era of the 70s. Um, the cases we're going to explore um, in some ways may be linked um, uh, investigatively. Uh, they may only be linked um thematically um it's not exclusively about um uh, traveling but that's something we're going to touch on um it is not a podcast about the jen's book um that was just the icebreaker uh which is a pretty pretty good book someone someone gave it to me a number of years ago and um i read it and you know this this uh, i it's absolutely terrifying this notion that you're sleeping in your tent and somebody drives over you and then tries to bury an axe in your skull uh it's like your worst nightmare um recently my my children have um begun to really love and explore independently this notion of camping overnight on their own and uh not too long ago, uh, two of them uh, found themselves uh, on the West Coast in a national, and the, the, the idea was to camp overnight in a national park, and they, you know, texted me and asked me to, you know, what I thought of that. And of course, immediately, the first thing that ran through my head was the Jen's book. Uh, you, you know, it's, you, you jump immediately to, wow, we, we, we want to go and explore, you know, Sierra Nevadas or you know Yosemite or whatever and immediately go yeah and you'll end up um, run over by a pickup truck with an axe in your head that's <laughs> you know there's 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 no incremental uh, getting there for me it's it's like zero to a hundred boom bang the worst case scenario right there and uh, and I suppose you know a lot of it had to do with uh, uh, 70s in this concept of, of uh, freedom certainly my my sister Teresa um, uh, loved thumbing it and bumming it um, you know if she she wanted to go she just you know she'd go there's no uber or anything you just stuck out your thumb and, and you went and uh, um, we've talked about it before and, and passionate cyclist and camper and all that in fact I um, you know, I recall this incident where uh, she wanted to, on her own, independently, I, I may have told this before, but um, I since have uh, additional information from my brother, I have his perspective. She wanted to ride her bike from Montreal to Long Sioux, which is is quite a bike ride. I, I think it's about 100 miles uh, across the Ontario border to the Long Sioux campground just outside of Cornwall, Ontario. And, and I remembered it as a big fight. You're not doing that. Yes, I am. And all this. My, my brother said he didn't remember anything like that, that it was quite cooperative. He said it, it was a fight when she had the idea in her head that she was going to go to Europe and bike through Europe. He said that was a confrontation between Teresa and my parents. But he said in this incident, he said he and you know, it was kind of there were pieces missing from it it was because you know it's that would have been like around mid 70 75 um 
you didn't really have the gear that you have today to be able to bike and camp, you know, like saddlebags and, and that kind of stuff. So it was kind of like, well, if this really did happen, then where did she stay? And, and how did she, you know, how did she lug all that gear? So I began to think in my head that maybe, maybe it was my memory and that I, I, I imagined it and that really didn't happen. And, uh, my brother pointed out that no, it, it actually did happen. And, um, the mechanics of it were that, um, he and my father drove ahead to Long Sioux and set up the tent. We had like this, like arcane, uh, green army tent that we used to use to camp. It, it smelled horribly of mildew all the time. Uh, nevertheless, it, um, it served its purpose. And, uh, so he said he drove ahead they drove ahead. They set up the camp for her. He said he doesn't recall her arriving. It would have been like Teresa to say, okay, you can set up the tent, but then get the fuck out of there, all right? Because I don't want to see you when I arrive. I mean, I'm on my own. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a big girl. Um, so I think that's how that happened. Uh, I don't know if they drove back to Montreal or if they stayed the night in Cornwall. And took down the tent like one or two days later. But nevertheless, um, yeah, um, Wonderlust and um, and Hitting the Road. Um, uh, to, set the, to set the stage for the case we're ultimately going to discuss today, uh, I want to read an article. And it's the only article we'll read today. It's from the Gazette. In um, 1970-71, about this phenomena that summer of of young kids uh, hitting the road uh, before they went back to school and and just traveling from town to town. Uh, It's a really good little sociological piece about exactly how the breakdown of how that happened back then in that era... um, before um, cell phones and messaging and as I said Uber and and all of this um, the the mechanics of exactly how that um, that played out so I'll take a moment and uh, then I'll I'll briefly read through this Gazette article Thousands of youngsters on the road this summer. Leon Harris, the Montreal Gazette. It's midnight. The temperature hovers near 70. The sky is clear. On the McGill University campus, just left of the arts building, a youthful traveler, about 18, unfolds his sleeping bag and prepares to crash for the night. The scene is much the same in other parts of the city. Mount Royal... Angrignon Park in the West End, and vacant fields on the north and south shores all provide areas where youthful transients catch a few hours' sleep. Before school begins again next month, about 5,000 hitchhikers, panhandlers, and a few seeking temporary employment will have passed through Montreal, according to a YMCA spokesman. 
They come from all over the country, but British Columbia seems to be the province where wanderlust strikes the deepest. There are so many Vancouverites in the Montreal area this summer. They will return home in the fall, but in the meantime, they spend their time moving quietly from one town to another, quote, just doing our thing. A lack of summer jobs seems to be the primary reason why so many young people are on the roads. A recent survey by the Federal Manpower Department estimates that more than 640,000 high school and junior college and university students are seeking summer jobs. This is about 60,000 more than last year, but only 500,000 jobs are available for students during the summer. Young people on the bum do not normally worry about money. They may start out from the West Coast with as little as $10, but rarely go hungry. Truck drivers, traveling salesmen, and young people with cars of their own will often feed a hitchhiker and perhaps provide him with a dollar or so to help him on his way. But hitchhiking can be dangerous. 18-year-old Mary Coleman of California was killed and her companion, Margaret Jones, 18, seriously injured in an incident on Route 36 near La Prairie on July 7th. It is believed the two girls fought with a driver who picked them up and then they either jumped or were thrown from the car. Many of the youthful transients turn to panhandling when they run out of money. Sherbrooke Street between Park Avenue and McTavish is one of the favorite spots for those who ask, Do you have any spare change? This particular stretch of Sherbrooke Street can be classified as the Panhandler's Gold Mine because the area is heavily populated by students. A working student sometimes secretly envies his bumming counterpart and more likely than not will flip him a quarter to help him on his way. An experienced panhandler can often con 5 to $7 in a couple of hours. This goes for food, cigarettes, maybe a new tube of toothpaste, and bus fare to outskirts of town. $7 can last an experienced traveler two or three days. When it's time to hit the road again, the young transients travel lightly. Most carry just a sleeping bag and a knapsack. The knapsack usually contains little more than a change of socks, an underwear, an extra shirt, a bathing suit, toilet articles, and perhaps a couple of tins of food. It's a field or a barn and a spot where the hitchhiker chooses to spend the night. Then a gas station restroom becomes the spot for morning ablutions. Most gas station attendants are cooperative and provide the key to the restroom. This summer, the federal government decided to provide some help to transient youth. A federally sponsored hostel for youths hitchhiking across Canada was opened in the south shore of Langay on July 11th. The hostel, or, quote, crash pad, as youngsters prefer to call it, is located in a military building, the B Squadron Armory of the Royal Canadian Hussars on St. Lawrence Street. 
The Longay Hostel is one of three such centers planned for Quebec and the only one in the Montreal region. The others will be located at Hull and Rivière de Loup. Admission to the Longay Hostel is free. Brian Haywood, a 20-year-old Vancouverite, has been on the road since the middle of May. He said he couldn't remember how much money he started out with, but it wasn't a bundle, I'll tell you that. Brian plans to return to college in the fall and work part-time to help pay for his tuition fees. But in the meantime, he plans to keep traveling and headed off up to the gas bay after his stay in Montreal. Why do I like the open road, he said. The answer's simple. You just have an unbelievable feeling of freedom. I want to go back to the part about um, the uh, California student Margaret Coleman being murdered while hitchhiking that summer. Of course I do. But before I do, I, um, something I should point out. Uh, in this episode, and even in what we've already heard so far in what I just read, there is an incredible amount of foreshadowing, um, telegraphing, and I'm I'm speaking if if you've been listening uh, to the podcast in the arena of those discussions, the, the, what we've already heard and what we're going to hear is dense with um, with references that should be familiar to some of you, and in in some ways it's backshadowing in in the sense that if. If, if, well, if we're talking chronologically, this is the 70s, so it's foreshadowing. But if we're talking about the podcast, it's sort of like it's referencing in reverse to um, to what many things we've already talked about. I'm not those those are Easter eggs, man. Um, I'm not going to uh, I'm not going to dissect them. Um, those are just uh, little goodies for you to kind of kind of store. Um, and maybe <laughs> if you're in it for the long haul in, um, in maybe, um, one or two years, we'll, <laughs> we'll come back to them. But, the, but for the, for, for those of you hardliners, I think already you, you've heard in some of that, some things you kind of go, Oh, kind of heard that before Montreal Hussars. What's that? What's that about? Um, anyway, it's, uh, and I'll say some of the things are just coincidence, but um, some of the things I can't reveal right now um, are very deliberate. And again, in the grand sphere of things, um, do have greater, greater meaning, meaning in this, um, as I say, in this arena of all the cases we've talked about um, of unsolved murders in Quebec in the 70s. Now, to the subject of this podcast, the murder of Margaret Coleman and the notion of hitchhiking. Uh, This plays into the myth of hitchhiking in that era. And it turns out that that's probably not true um, or potentially not true that she was hitchhiking Therefore, she was murdered. That's, as I say, that's a cultural myth uh, from the era of the 70s. Um, but before 
you know, deconstructing that, investigating that, we need to know more about the story of Margaret Coleman. Today, when so softly, just faded away, like the rain in the springtime on the day. In the summer of 1970, 18-year-olds Margaret Peggy Coleman and Margaret Jones flew from their homes in the Woodland Hills area of California to New York. From there, they rode buses through New England to Montreal and began a cross-country vacation in the United States and Canada. Coleman was carrying $175 in cash, Jones $300. They had saved up the money working part-time jobs. They told their parents they would travel by bus. Coleman was a recent graduate of a private girls' school near her home in Canoga Park. She had just completed her junior year at a community college where she was on the dean's list as one of Pierce College's outstanding students. She was planning to transfer to UCLA to major in social studies. Coleman's traveling companion, Margaret Jones, was a native of Encino. The girls met at Pierce College, and Jones was intending to go to UC Santa Cruz. Stopping in Montreal for a few days, the girls visited Man and His World, site of the 1967 World's Fair. Every second day, they would call home. Both girls had promised their parents they would travel by bus. In Jones's last call, she told her mother they were preparing to go to Detroit to visit Margaret Coleman's grandmother. Carrying little more than sleeping rolls, Coleman and Jones were last seen at a traffic circle in Saint-Hubert, about 10 miles east of Montreal, adjacent to Longueuil. A motorist had given the girls a ride to the traffic circle. According to the motorist, the girls told him they were headed for a campsite near La Prairie, about 10 miles south of Saint-Hubert, to meet other California hitchhikers from Quebec. The girls were found Wednesday morning, July 9th, 1970, 600 feet apart from each other, by a farmer en Chemin de Grand Lang near Highway 36, between Lacadie et Saint-Jean-sur-Richelieu, their bedrolls and other belongings were found about six miles further down the road. They had either jumped or been pushed from a speeding car. Margaret Coleman died of skull fractures. Margaret Jones was seriously injured and rushed unconscious to Notre Dame Hospital in Montreal, where she was in deep shock. 
left for dead, Margaret Jones lay in a Montreal hospital with a severe concussion. A week later, she developed a serious blood clot. Doctors scheduled emergency surgery. When her condition unexpectedly improved, the operation was canceled. Eventually, Margaret Jones got better. Slowly, she began smiling and talking. Margaret sufficiently recovered to the point where Quebec provincial police believed she could be interviewed. There was just one problem. Margaret Jones couldn't remember what happened. She knew she was in a hospital, but she didn't know how she got there. She thought she was still in La Prairie, not Montreal. She did not even recall that she had been traveling with Margaret Coleman. She was not informed of her friend's death. Now, this is the part where I inform you that there was a criminal investigative failure, because there always is, and it involved the Quebec police, because it always does. In the days that followed, it was disclosed that police had blundered. A South Shore police constable saw something unusual and didn't investigate. The constable was parked at the side of the road talking with a farmer when he saw a car zigzagging down the highway, its horn blaring. The constable turned back to the farmer and resumed his conversation. He explained that he never attempted to intercept the vehicle because it was not speeding and he thought it belonged to a local resident. Coleman and Jones saw the police cruiser and were attempting to signal him. Less than an hour later, the girls were found about a mile down the road from where the police cruiser sat. The tragic events could have been averted. When Coleman's father, John Coleman, heard about this event, he said the cop should turn in his badge. Sarté du Québec investigators agreed. On Wednesday, July 29th, three weeks after the tragic event, Margaret Jones boarded a plane at Dorval Airport bound back to California. Wearing an eye patch to correct her double vision problem suffered from the ejection or fall from the moving vehicle, Jones still had not been told of the death of her traveling companion, Margaret Peggy Coleman. And up to this point, the story had been predominantly covered by the the Montreal Gazette, although the uh, there was some French coverage too. Um, once Jones returns to California, the the Los Angeles Times steps in and picks up the story, and they had a very different interpretation 
of uh, the events that took place in Quebec in the summer of 1970, the uh, the Gazette um, persistently hammered on the notion that Coleman and Jones allegedly were hitchhikers. Uh, their their headlines almost exclusively focused on this. For instance, um, no operation for hitchhiker. California hitchhiker victim goes home. The, the Los Angeles Times has a very different approach. Um, co-ed letter weakens hitchhiking theory. You see, the parents of Margaret Coleman, they, they um, were very mad about this. Um, and they revealed to the Times that, that they had received... Um, Margaret's uh, last letter on July 7th, two days before her death. And in that letter, mailed uh, July 5th from Montreal, Margaret assured her parents, quote, we are being real careful and we pretend we are with other parents, unquote. The Times goes on to say that the parents, quote, cited the statement to support their belief that their daughter and her companion were not hitchhiking the theory of Montreal police, end quote. Now, where, where, you know, what's going on here? Um, you've, you've known me long enough. It, it's good old-fashioned victim stigmatization. It's, um, it's blaming the victim, and, and whereby the police are relieved of the, of, of the responsibility of solving the crime, right? Um, yeah, she's a foreigner. Uh, she's from another country. She comes into this country. Uh, she does something she shouldn't be doing. Uh, ergo, we're we're we are we're going to wash our hands and uh, we are absolved from this, right? Wrong. And and um, and anyway, let let's just suppose just suppose that they these two girls that they were hitchhiking. Um, suppose that they lied to their parents, which is possible because, you know, they didn't want to overly burden or concern them. What would that even matter? So the logic there is they, they were hitchhiking, so they therefore deserve to die. It's an absurd and monstrous notion that any grieving parent should be forced and compelled to even offer such a defense in the wake of their child's murder. This letter went on to say that the two girls were sleeping in crowded campsites near major highways because, quote, it's probably safer that way, unquote. And in an earlier postcard, Margaret Coleman wrote, don't ever worry about us hitchhiking. You know, Mommy, I'd never do that. We have an emergency fund. And can take a cab anywhere we have to go. In a later Los Angeles Times article, Margaret Jones says she cannot ever recall hitchhiking. And some Quebec men come forward and express that they remember seeing Coleman and Jones at a filling station 
and that they had turned down a couple of rides. Montreal Gazette, September 9th, 1971. New facts found in girls' murder. In the fall of 1970, Montreal Sarté de Quebec police traveled to Los Angeles to meet with Margaret Jones. There, assisted with their identification bureau, Jones developed a composite sketch of her friend Margaret Coleman's killer. Quebec police began to focus on personnel from the Canadian forces bases in Saint-Hubert, Saint-Jean-sur-Richelieu, and Long Point. Pictures of some 40 men on file uh, bore some resemblance to the sketch. Police intended to either travel to California again or fly Jones to Montreal to review the photos. Police denied that any arrests were imminent. From her parents' home in Encino, Margaret Coleman attempted to recall what she remembered about the incident 14 months prior. When I thought about it afterwards, I I get the feeling it was a military man, and I told the police that. When I see them around Los Angeles, they seem the same sort. The man she describes to Quebec police was wearing olive, khaki, or brown fatigues and heavy boots. He had very short, dark hair and a thin body. The outfit he was wearing, it was heavy cloth, not the sort of thing you'd wear when you go out in the evening. Once critical of the way Quebec police were handling the investigation, charging they were covering up the case, Mrs. Coleman later changed her mind. I think they're handling the case wonderfully, though she was unable to explain why police waited nearly a year before releasing news of the composite sketch of the suspected killer. The sketch was drawn up around September of last year, she said. And where were the Quebecois media in all this? Well, the English-language Montreal Gazette began to focus on a military suspect, the French papers had a different approach. In March 1971, La Presse discloses that the location where Coleman and Jones were found was less than a mile from the Saint-Hubert hideout where FLQ members Paul and Jacques Rose had held former Quebec Minister of Labour Pierre Laporte in the fall of 1970. Laporte was later found murdered in the trunk of a car at the Saint-Hubert airport. The event spawned Canada's October crisis. And and, and this, this fact may answer Mrs. Coleman's query about why it took police so long to publicly disclose the composite. The, um, for those of you not from Canada, the October crisis was one of the most galvanizing social and political events in Quebec history. 
uh, involving uh, terrorism and bombings and kidnapping and eventually, uh, you know, the death of a very prominent um, resident citizen um, public servant. After Laporte's murder, all police resources would have been put to use catching the uh, FLQ members and building a case to bring them to trial and justice. Margaret Coleman would have been largely forgotten in the wake of such a provincial crisis, and thus her case went dormant for over a year. Um, And then you have this small flurry of activity in 71 with a military suspect on the one hand, or potentially was she, did they somehow were in the, in the wrong place at the wrong time with Paul and Jacques Rose. Um, nevertheless, the uh, cold case of Margaret Coleman is quickly forgotten. People stop writing about the matter and uh, Margaret Coleman slips from memory. At her funeral in Canoga Park, Margaret Coleman was described as an avid poetry writer. Margaret was interned in a pale lavender gown she had made herself. Her last poem was read at the ceremony. Every time someone in this world hurts another, my sunflower loses a petal. Yesterday, a little boy was mocked and scorned because his color is dark. Today, women and children are screaming in the jungles across the sea. Their cries fall on deaf ears, and injustice seems endless. Tomorrow, someone is bound to hurt his brother. It is the nature of man. My flower is suffering because of it. Soon there will not be any petals on my sunflower. Someday men will realize God is love. Love will conquer all and my sunflower will bloom again. Life isn't fair. Justice is blind and dysfunctional. said at the beginning this is the first of a three-part podcast um and um, some of the threads mentioned in this first part um will have to be left unanswered 
until subsequent episodes. Um, some of it will be answered. Some of it won't. This is not one of these series um, where I come back ultimately with all the answers. I, I frankly don't. I don't have the answers in the three cases, uh, four cases. We're going to discuss. Uh, it's one of those ones where it's a it's a real puzzler, and you know whether you're talking about terrorists or military personnel, and it's all um, it's all up in the air. It's all up for grabs, and if if anybody has good information. Uh, I'm all ears because um, I'm stumped. Uh, with these, uh, the, uh, with some of them doors open, uh, and you get a little further, uh, but then you, you you run against a barricade and you you're, you're stopped. You can't go any further. Right? Frustrating. Uh, anyway, that's our pad, pad podcast for this week. I'm your host, John Amore. This has been Who Killed Teresa. Uh, follow us, share the podcast on social media. Um, you know, uh, push it around, promote it. It's always helpful. Um, not for my sake, for their sake. Maybe somebody knows something out there and we can bring these cases to a resolution. You can follow me on Twitter at Teresa Lore at T-H-E-R-E-S-A-A-L-L-O-R-E. There is also a Facebook page, Who Killed Teresa, the podcast. Just search on it and you'll find it. That's it, folks. Over and out. I am out. This has been Who Killed Teresa, and have yourselves a great, great day.
Gym sessions and sweaty summer activities are back, which means more funky smells in your clothes because sweat leaves behind bacteria that causes those hard-to-remove odors. Clorox fabric sanitizer products are ready to zap the stink out of fabrics in your home by getting rid of 99.9% of odor-causing bacteria. Eliminate odors in every load or sanitize fabrics between washes with one of our fabric sanitizer products. Search fabric sanitizer at Clorox.com to learn more. When it counts, trust Clorox. Use as directed. True crime on A&E with groundbreaking original shows like The First 48, Cold Case Files, Accused, Guilty or Innocent, and American Justice. No one brings you closer. Groundbreaking true crime every Thursday and Friday on A&E.